Welcome to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast, a podcast providing in-depth analysis and coverage of your favorite Milwaukee Brewers by Peter and David Go. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our first episode of season two of the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. I'm your host, Peter Go, alongside David here. Uh, excited for episode one of season two. Excited to be in the new year and excited to cover the Brewers uh, offseason as it winds down as we get ready for spring training. Uh, David, your opening thoughts here today? Yeah, I'm excited to do this. This is also uh, being recorded remotely through Zoom. Not something that we do very often. We've done it before, but um, hope that it all Turns out well, especially going into this new season. Kind of an exciting episode now. I think we made about 30 episodes in season one. So hopefully we can hit at least about 50, 55 this upcoming year. Produce one episode every week and keep you guys covered with as much Brewers content as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, let's just jump right into things, starting off with today's trivia question. Today's trivia question is the following. The Brewers' first cycle in their franchise history was on September 3rd, 1976. Who was that player that hit for the cycle? So again, Brewers' first cycle happening on September 3rd, 1976. Can you name that player um, who achieved the first cycle in Brewers' history? Of course, the most recent one being Christian Yelich back in 2018. And even before the podcast, I was uh, mentioning to David that uh, the one before Yelich was actually seven years prior, which seemed like a long time, but uh, nonetheless... The great backup catcher, George Kataris, did that in 2011. So uh, anyways, uh, that is our trivia question of the day. So be thinking of the answer of that as we go along again, as always. The answer of that will be given at the end uh, before we test David. I don't know if he can get this one. This is kind of a unique one. We'll see if, if he can get it. But I'm, nonetheless, I'm feeling pretty confident. Okay, then I am not feeling confident that I got you then. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, uh, David, why don't you take it away with today's random player of the day? Yeah, today we'll be doing a random player of the day at the beginning, and today's player is Jeff Supon. I was thinking about Jeff Supon yesterday and today because, of, of course, I was. Saturday actually was his birthday. He turned 46 years old, uh, January 2nd, 1975, and, of course, I remember that his birthday was January 2nd. Uh, so we are going to commemorate the great Brewers career of Jeff Supon. During his entire Major League career, actually, he threw over 2,500 innings, which Comes out to a 162-game average of 200 innings, um, which is very good. Uh, I would say a dependable mid-to-back end-of-the-rotation starter. Pitched four years with the Brewers, 5.08 ERA, 577 innings that he did throw with the Brewers. And those came between 2007 and 2010. He was released midway through the 2010 season in his age 35 year. Supon, of course, was, I don't know if I'd quite go so far as to say hated, but strongly disliked by much of the Brewers fan base because he was expected to play a big role in their uh, their postseason chances starting in 2007, which that year, unfortunately, they did taper off down the stretch uh, before ultimately finishing with 83 wins. 2008, he did help the Brewers to a postseason berth, although 4.96 ERA in 31 starts wasn't exactly what the Brewers were paying for at about $10 million for a small market team. But Supon had... An overall pretty good career. Most of his best years, though, came with other franchises outside of Milwaukee. Yeah, definitely a household name that I'm sure we all remember. I think, like you said, Brewers fans were overall disappointed, uh, mainly given the high expectations or high hopes that Brewers fans had for Supon, uh, especially given the fact that the Brewers 
uh, rarely we're willing to spend the money um, on free agents, especially if we look back to the early 2000s that Brewers fans were accustomed to. Again, we look at the previous ownership. We actually talked about that. Was that last episode we talked about last, the previous owners? Or two, yeah. maybe that was two episodes Yeah, it was ago. recently, but, though. Yeah, yeah we were talking the... about the previous owners. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, so I mean, coming off of, of the, the, the 90s even and the early 2000s for the Brewers, how the Brewers signing Supon in free agency in 07 was really a, a big deal. And like you said, high expectations for him didn't happen. And uh, overall was a, a bust, uh, at, at least at, a, at the Brewers level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, also known for the, the great Ned Yost quote, suit pitch good tonight. Always six innings, six that, runs. Yeah, yeah, eight up some <laughs> innings, I guess. Yeah. Also, just a couple random stats that I was as I was looking through his page. But in 2009, he pitched a full season with the Brewers, and he had 4.5 strikeouts per nine on average, which is extremely low. The lowest qualifier wasn't even that low last year. And then 4.1 walks per nine, which is also not a very good mark. So, of course, that's not that's not very good. The game was a little different, even only 10, 11 years ago. But also in, in 2000, he served up 36 home runs in one year, which especially for 2000 when there weren't quite as many home runs, pitching in the AL Central, a very high mark. How does that compare to uh, Braden Looper's year? Uh, Looper, I think, allowed... 30 in in the low 30s okay of course Looper I, did win 14 games that year right right I remember he had a ton of wins that year and a ton of home runs allowed oh Looper actually allowed 39 home runs okay that year so um so yeah right up there I guess with with Supon Looper finishing 14 and 7 with a 5.22 ERA one of the all-time great win loss and ERA discrepancies I would say yeah, certainly, certainly. So anyways, moving on to news that we have covered briefly uh, in the weeks preceding, um, but it is now official. Miller Park is no more. Uh, the Brewers' home since its opening in 2001, now American Family Field. So just kind of a, a small note. I don't know. Good memories, I guess. Miller Park, we'll see how much uh, the name change really is used. I don't know if you have any thoughts on whether fans are, are really going to change up what they call it or if it'll last as Miller Park for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. I think eventually it will change, but I think for a while it'll either be just people calling it Miller Park or people saying Miller Park, or wait, is it American Family Field, something like that, where you kind of catch yourself mid-sentence, mid-thought. Um, so I, I think that Miller Park, it's not like people are going to forget what Miller Park is or was. Uh, I think a lot of the signage will change how it looks. Of course, the Miller Park sign at the front of the ballpark the, the very beginning when you walk in being, I would say, a little bit short of iconic, but very memorable when you're walking in. And that plays a big role. And I don't think it will really look the same having the American Family Field logo there. But at the same time, uh, Miller Lite has said that they will still have a big influence with the Brewers. American Family has been a big sponsor of the Brewers for, I think, 20 years now. I'm actually recording this here looking, I was just looking up at a Don Sutton bobblehead from 2007, and it has the American Family Insurance logo right on the side of it since they had sponsored the bobblehead. So I don't think that it will change really a lot. I think it'll more just be kind of along the lines of, um, of the technicality or the official name being changed, especially now with a lot of ballparks changing names pretty quickly we could see the Brewers in a similar spot to that, even with Miller Park having been the name of it for so long. There's actually a recent article on the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel uh, where they actually talked with uh, Rick Schlesinger, who is 
uh, head of business operations for the Brewers. And he talked about clearing up a misunderstanding that some people had around whether American Family Fields, or excuse me, American Family had outbid Miller Coors for the naming rights. And he did say that it was not a bidding war and that they actually, the Brewers, had approached American Family about the name change. And, and like you said, they've, they've been a sponsor for the Brewers for a long time. Um, and it makes sense geographically as well. So it seems like they're not necessarily done with a relationship with Miller Coors. They certainly could uh, partner with other things, but at the end of the day, they decided that American Family is who they wanted to sponsor the overall stadium. A few days ago, they did release a video talking about how they'll continue to be partners with uh, with Molson Coors. They're now based out of Chicago, so I think that that makes a big difference in having the naming rights of the stadium. But I, Miller Lite will still remain the official beer of the Brewers, and they'll still there will still be a lot of influence in Miller Park. Or, excuse me, in American Family Field. <laughs> Already did it, I guess. Um, and also, th- this was probably the the weirdest quote that I've heard in a while. For the 50th anniversary, the Brewers are giving away 50 jerseys to different companies and partnerships that have meant a lot to them over the years. So they gave one to American Family and gave it the number 21 because 2021 is the beginning of their partnership. And then they gave number 10 to Molson Coors. And Rick Schlesinger said, we are going to give you number 10 because here we are starting a new decade of a new partnership and decades last 10 years. So we're going to give you number 10. Real original. <laughs> yeah, which I so, thought was about the strangest reasoning for giving them the number 10. It doesn't really matter. It's more of just symbolic, but I thought it was kind of a, a weird and funny quote. Yeah, I'm not sure. Whoever came up with that idea uh, may not be still working for the Brewers. <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess when you have not 50 numbers to give out, you got to be creative in, in trying to come up with a reason for each of the numbers mm-hmm. as opposed yeah, to, yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, either way. And uh, moving over to Major League Baseball news as a whole, um, it's been a relatively quiet offseason, and the Padres, uh, as I'm sure you've heard by now, uh, really made a boom this past week uh, with two deals. David, do you want to talk about that a little bit? The first trade that they made acquired Blake Snell from the Rays. Snell comes just two years removed from an AL Cy Young award. He also was pitching so well in game six of the World Series. Kevin Cash controversially came and took him out of the game. Of course, that's been in the headlines a lot since that happened. Blake Snell says he has no hard feelings. Whether or not that's true, I'm not sure. But apparently he kind of wanted out of Tampa Bay. And he had signed an extension recently. Usually signing an extension with the Rays means that you'll probably be traded. That's just how it works. Seems like it's kind of counterintuitive, but... That's usually what happens because they end up being paid more than the Rays would like to pay them, which is extremely low. Snell, though, comes with a couple years of control, and they acquired a pretty good prospect package in return. Luis Patino headed that, one of the top pitching prospects in all of baseball. The Padres are certainly happy to get Snell, though. And then the other move, they acquired Hugh Darvish from the Cubs, and this has much stronger implications for the Brewers, of course, being big division rivals with the Cubs. But it also is symbolic of the direction that the Cubs are going. The Cubs are coming off of a year where they won the division. They made the playoffs five of the last six years, including one World Series championship. So they've had the core in place for a while, but entering 2021, Chris Bryant, Javier Baez, Anthony Rizzo, all entering contract years. Lester is a free agent now. Schwarber and Elmora were cut loose. Quintana also a free agent. They decided to trade Darvish while he's coming off the runner-up Cy Young finish. Overall, I thought they received a little bit of a light return, some lower-level prospects, along with Zach Davies, former Brewer, 
I think Brewer fans would like to have Zach Davies back, actually, if they could. So it'll be kind of unfortunate to see him in a Cubs uniform. But you, Darvish, one of the best pitchers in the National League last year, is out of the division. And also, I think, makes things in the NL Central even a little bit murkier, maybe, and a little bit more more tight together looking at the talent level of the top four teams in the division. Yeah, like you said, I, I thought the most intriguing thing about the two trades, uh, of course, it, it showed the Padres' hand. They're, like you said, they're, all, they're going all in. Uh, but that wasn't a huge surprise. I think the biggest roadblock to, the, to them is the Dodgers, of course, in their division. But it, it wasn't too surprising. But like you said, the Cubs showed their hand, uh, likely going to be looking to whatever you want to call, rebuild, sell, whatever it is. Um, but I'm, in, I'm curious to see how that also impacts, like you said, their, their big names coming up to free agency. You know, how do they feel um, choosing to stay with the Cubs? Are they going to be looking to go elsewhere? Do the Cubs have the money or want to spend the money on their free agents? And if so, which of them? Um, Cubs could be a completely different team uh, in a year, really. Um, so it'll be interesting. I'm just intrigued to see what happens to the Cubs and, and hopefully – Hopefully we see them sell and, and be bad for a long time because that's always fun to watch as a Brewer fan. But I think that's kind of my uh, biggest thing that I took away is the Cubs are for sure uh, going to be sellers, at least in the short term. Yeah, I would agree with that. And that's the direction that they're heading. They're, they're getting older. They've lost a lot of free agents. And yeah, one thing to watch, I would say really the biggest storyline in the NL Central is what free agents will be retained by the Cubs this upcoming offseason they're not going to spend the money on all three of them to sign them to big contracts. It seems pretty clear actually internally from what I've heard that Chris Bryant wants out that he's going to leave after this year. So if that is true, they have Rizzo and Baez basically where they have to decide and Contreras is hitting free agency pretty soon. He's not quite to that level of Rizzo, Baez and Bryant. Personally, I can't see Rizzo going anywhere else. I think that Rizzo, even though he is a little bit older, he's entering his age 31 season. I think that he's kind of the heart and soul of that organization from a playing standpoint. And I think as a result that he will probably sign an extension to come back to the Cubs, even if he is getting a little bit older. Baez, I'm not sure as much. I think Baez will likely go where the best opportunity is for him. That could be the Cubs, but it could be another organization. But there are a ton of good shortstops hitting the market next year. Carlos Correa, Francisco Lindor, Corey Seager, all hitting the market, as well as Baez, of course. So we'll see how that affects it also. Baez could sign an extension at maybe a little bit lower than market value right now because he doesn't think that he's going to get as much of a market going in with so many good options at shortstop. But of course, we will see the three of them in a Cubs uniform come the spring training unless they decide to trade one of them, which I would say is pretty unlikely at this point. Yeah, you mentioned the hot market uh, for shortstops in the free agent market after the 2021 season. And it, it reminds me sort of, we didn't see a lot of great hitting potential at the shortstop position, it felt like. And then we've had a lot of these young players come up, uh, like you mentioned, Correa and Baez included. Uh, sort of reminds me of the second base position that we saw um, earlier, maybe 10, about 10, or 10 years or so. Um, Chase Utley, Dustin Pedroia, Robinson Cano, that sort of thing where the position was sort of revitalized into a more offensive focused position kind of reminds me um, of what we're seeing today with some of those shortstops as well. Just kind of a thought that uh, mm -hmm. reminds me maybe similar to the revival of the offensive or maybe not revival. <laughs> I don't know that there was ever great, yeah. great offense at second base, but uh, just a change in that position. So nonetheless, how does this, how would you say that overall these moves by the Padres translate to the Brewers? You know, how do they impact the Brewers' chances at the division and the Brewers as a franchise going forward for the next couple of years, especially? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think 
the biggest thing we've already we've already discussed being that the Cubs aren't the team that they have been in the past few years. And that bodes well for the Brewers because that's one less strong competitor to contend with in the NL Central. I think that's the biggest thing. But also, it helps the other NL Central teams, and it creates a closer picture, like I mentioned before. Look at Fangraph's projected standings, and they're all supposed to be really close. We don't know exactly how the rest of the offseason will shake out, but at this point, it doesn't seem like any of the teams are going to spend big over the course of the rest of the offseason. Yeah, we've talked about that already on, on numerous episodes with teams cutting costs. Um, seems like a, an optimal time to go in, and the Padres are definitely taking advantage of that. But like you said, Fangraph's projections have the Brewers at an 80 and 82 record, which actually puts them at the top of the division. So, um, they, like you said, very tight division. Brewers projected for 80 wins. Reds following with 79, Cardinals at 78, Cubs 75, and Pirates at 70 wins. So uh, likely we'll see this change a little bit with uh, some moves that will likely happen before the season begins. But I don't know that we expect any of those teams to make any bigger big moves because all of them seem to be um, looking to cut costs. And, and maybe we'll see one or more of those teams uh, hold off until potentially the deadline uh, during the season to try to make a move. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll see. That, that could happen. And also, I I would think that a team like the Brewers or the Reds that are so dependent on the gate revenue that coming in, fans coming in in person might be more hesitant to spend right now while we don't know what the season will look like uh, from the standpoint of how many fans will be able to watch the games because I think that that will affect their spending a lot. If for some reason, January 15th, they announce that 30,000 fans can come in per game, I don't think that's likely, but if for some reason that did happen, that might affect the Brewer spending, the Reds spending, being some of the smaller market teams. But throughout the offseason, the Reds and Cubs have been cutting costs. Brewers and Cardinals have really just kind of stood where they're at and cut costs around the margins where they can. Like the Cardinals uh, declining the reasonably priced option for Colton Wong, who coming off a gold glove. Brewers declining options for Jed Jerko, Eric Sogard, some of the other guys like that and not really spending anything yet. So we'll see if the Brewers and the, the Reds, I don't know if I'd even say that the Cardinals or Cubs will buy the rest of the offseason. Cardinals even might lose Wainwright and Molina. We'll see how that ends up that, uh, affecting the NL Central. Not that they're the players that they used to be, but that would be a, a big culture shift, I think, even in St. Louis. Yeah, and, and are there reports that you've seen of a potential move where Wainwright and Molina could go? Yeah, I mean, apparently Wainwright had some interest from the Braves. He's a Georgia native. He actually originally started out his career in the minor league organization for the Braves. The Braves have a penchant for bringing in hometown players for whatever reason. So that's possible that we see that. But the Cardinals would like to retain Wainwright. Molina had received interest from the Mets. I think he's received interest from the Angels also. So it's possible that he leaves. He's, he said that he's been uh, unhappy with the offers the Cardinals have given him so far. Molina could affect their pitching staff as a whole more so than just his production personally as a player. That could play into the NL Central race as well with probably an 85-win team taking the division. Projected right now 80 wins. I don't think it's likely that an 80-win team wins the division. It's never been done in the history of baseball before. But I, I think that 85-86 wins will win the division this year. I, I agree with you. I don't see any team uh, eclipsing the 90 win mark for sure. And even upper 80s seems unlikely. Um, and in normal circumstances, I may say, you know, we're going to likely see one or two of these teams make a run at it, make some moves during the season. But like you said, so much uncertainty still for the season. 
And yeah, can the Brewers absorb uh, a loss in the 2020 season? Sure. But can they continue to lose money as the uncertainty continues? We don't really know. So I, I, I definitely agree with you as well as we see uh, fans hopefully returning to the ballpark. Uh, we will likely see the Brewers spending to probably correlate with that with a lot of their revenue coming from uh, tickets. All right, just to wrap up today's episode, uh, we have our trivia question of the day. So let's see. Brewers' first cycle occurred on September 3rd, 1976. Who was the first player to do so? Mike Hegan. That is correct. Mike Hegan did have the first cycle in Brewers history in 1976, uh, followed by Charlie Moore, Robin Yount, Paul Molitor, Chad Moeller, great name there, Jody Garrett, George Kataris, and most recently, Christian Yelich. So... Mike Hegan, 1976, the Brewers' first cycle. There is your trivia question of the day. Apparently, that was not at all difficult for David. I thought that would be like a, a decently a decently hard one, but apparently not. Yeah, for some reason, I I just kind of knew that off the top of my head. Actually, it would have been an interesting exercise to see how many of those uh, hitters who did hit for the cycle I could have named. Probably wouldn't have named all of them. Don't think I would have gotten like Charlie Moore or even Molitor, maybe. Garrett, or, uh, Jody Garrett, would I would have remember? probably remembered Moeller, Garrett, and Kataris and Yelich. So, um, yeah, I don't, I feel like there are a lot of stats that come out about cycles just because they're kind of fun, even though they like it'd be better to hit a few home runs and right. a single than, <laughs> than hit one of each, but it is kind of fun. Yeah, it's just a fun stat. Yeah. So, there we go. Mike Hegan, your answer to today's trivia question. We did not get David. It sounds like way too easy, so I will step up the game uh, for our next episode. I did actually stumble upon something that was interesting while I was looking for today's uh, trivia question. Uh, there have been two players in MLB history that have hit a grand slam on the first pitch of their uh, career. Um, so that was kind of an interesting one. Uh, Daniel wasn't... Nava was one? Daniel Nava is was one of them. Uh, that happened in 2010. And the other one being Kevin Kuzminoff uh, on the Indians. He did that as well. But that was kind of a, a crazy one. I, I just was looking for a trivia question. Thought that was interesting that it's happened twice uh, for both of those guys. First major league pitch that they saw in the batter's box being a grand slam. So there's, a, there's another uh, random one you can store in the back of your head. Um, but either way, as we wrap up here, our random player of the day today was Jeff Supon. Uh, Brewers officially now play at American Family Field. And then we covered the two big moves, Padres acquiring Yu Darvish and Blake Snell, both via trade, and how that impacts the Brewers in what could be a, an interesting NL Central as we head into the 2021 season. So with that, this is Peter Go and David Go signing off. Go Brewers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. We would greatly appreciate if you would rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love if you would be willing to support our podcast financially. And you can find the link to do that down below in the episode notes through the Anchor app. Be sure to check out our blog at bleedingblueandyellow.wordpress.com where you can find great articles and content there. And interact with us at Brewers Podcast on Twitter or Instagram. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Welcome to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast, a podcast providing in-depth analysis and coverage of your favorite Milwaukee Brewers by Peter and David Goh.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. We would greatly appreciate if you would rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love if you would be willing to support our podcast financially. And you can find the link to do that down below in the episode notes through the Anchor app. Be sure to check out our blog at bleedingblueandyellow.wordpress.com where you can find great articles and content there and interact with us at Brewers Podcast on Twitter or Instagram. Thanks for listening and see you next week.